Wildwood Community Church exists to glorify God by connecting people to Christ, His worship, His community, and His mission. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. We're going to be beginning a new series today that will take us the next four weeks looking at Matthew chapter 3 and 4 at the, the foundational events early on in Jesus' public ministry, the events that would set the tone and the trajectory for the ministry of Christ in the last three years or so of his life on the earth. Uh, we're going to be looking at those things today um, as we look at Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. But before we launch into looking at Matthew 3, I, I want to just ask you a question. I want you to be honest, all right? How many of you remember much of the sermons that you've heard in your life? Let me ask you another way. How many of you remember any of the things that I've said or on this stage over the last little bit? Okay, a few hands. I appreciate that. You're making me feel a little better. Um, the reality is, though, we miss a lot of what we hear in settings like this, don't we? I mean, the, the message comes at us and it goes by us, but seldom does it go into us. And even less often is there something that is said in a format like this that we remember and hang on to for ages to come. Um, that's just the reality. We've all heard, you know, thousands of messages in our life and how many really stick with us. Well, I want to share with you this morning one message, in particular one part of one message that I heard in the spring of 1993 that has left a significant impact in my life. So in the spring of 1993, I was in the second semester of my freshman year at OU, and I was attending a, a meeting put on by Campus Crusade for Christ in the, the second floor of the stadium on the north side of the stadium on the OU campus. And I remember Bill Bolt, who was the director of, of crew at that time here in Norman, standing up and asking a very simple question that I, has stuck with me for years since. And this is what he asked. He said, do you want to be a part of a meeting or a movement? Do you want to be a part of a meeting or a movement? Do you want to be a part of attending something that is entertaining, that is, that, is, that is fun, that is a message that's it's interesting and the music we like? Do you want to be a part of just a meeting or do you want to be a part of a movement? And I remember when Bill asked that question at the beginning of that message, my heart leaned in and said, I want to be a part of a movement. And you know, even as I stand here today in front of you, friends, I have the same feeling. I want to be a part of a movement. How about you? Do you want to be a part of a meeting or do you want to be a part of a movement? The reality is that Jesus did not come to just have meetings. He didn't come just to, to gather a crowd and to tickle their ears. He came to involve us in a movement that would change the world including your life and mine. And by God's grace, he has extended to each of us the opportunity to participate with him in the movement that he is still working on this earth. And when we look at uh, Matthew chapters three and four and the verses we're gonna look at over the next four Sundays, what we're gonna see is the foundations, not of a meeting, but the foundations of a gospel movement that would shake the earth. And by God's grace, you and I have been invited to be a part of that. So we're going to look at today, uh, begin our discussion of these foundations by looking at Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. 
If you got a Bible, open up to, to Matthew chapter 3. These are, are verses that talk about John the Baptist and his role in running before Christ in his ministry. Uh, these are events that take place roughly 30 years after the events of Matthew 1 and 2 that talk about the birth of Jesus. A uh, season of time goes by, and then uh, the, the era of Jesus' public ministry has come about, and that's where the story picks up in Matthew chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. It says, In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. This is what he was preaching. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees, and every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire." I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Friends, in these 12 verses, we see a movement being birthed. And we're going to see three things about this movement in these verses today. The first thing that we see is that movements begin in the wilderness. Movements begin in the wilderness. Now, we see this with John the Baptist. It says right there in chapter 3, verse 1, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Now, who was John and, and what was his role? John had come as a forerunner to the king of kings. See, in, in ancient times, it was common when someone famous, a king or a ruler, would be headed to a destination that somebody would run before them and would clear the path, would make sure that the road had no boulders in it, would make sure that the walls were secure, and would announce in the city where the king was going to arrive that the king would soon be there. That was the role of the forerunner. And what we see in John the Baptist and his ministry was that God had set aside John the Baptist as a forerunner, not to just some earthly king, but to the king of kings. John was to run ahead of Jesus and make straight the path for people to come to him. Uh, we see this happening in the wilderness. We see it hinted at in the prophecy that is quoted here from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, quoted here in Matthew chapter 3, verse 3, that John was the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John was the forerunner of Jesus. Now, when we 
hear that. We're familiar enough with the story that that makes sense to us. But if you had been alive in the first century, you would have expected somebody not named John to be the forerunner of the King of Kings. You would have expected Elijah the prophet come back from the dead, clearing the path for the King of Kings. We know this because if you flip back just a couple of pages in your Bible, back to the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, it says this. It says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and the awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. The idea was that Elijah would come back and he would be a forerunner to the Messiah. Before you would see Messiah, you would see Elijah coming. And this was something that was echoed and known inside of Jewish culture. As a matter of fact, when they would have a circumcision of a child, they would have an extra chair present at that circumcision, an empty chair for Elijah. And the thought was, if Elijah walks in and sits down in this chair at the circumcision of our son, then we are very close to the arrival of the Messiah. When they would have the Passover meal, they would have an extra cup, the Elijah cup. The thought was, if Elijah walks in here and drinks this cup, that the day of the Lord would soon be upon us. It was very much in the the mindset of the Jewish people that Elijah would come ahead of Messiah, based on the prophecy that we just saw in Malachi chapter 4. But he doesn't come named Elijah, he comes named John. But we know that Elijah, or that John was coming in the spirit and the power of Elijah based on the other declarations of the New Testament. In the book of Luke, for instance, chapter 1, it is said of John's birth, it says that John will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready the Lord, a people prepared. There was this understanding even from the time that John was born that he was coming in the spirit and the power of Elijah. Jesus makes this statement as well. If you flip over to Matthew chapter 17, verses 12 and 13, Jesus says, I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased, talking about John's martyrdom. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. And then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. So John the Baptist comes in the spirit and the power of Elijah to prepare a straight path to Jesus. That was his role. That was his historical role. That was what John was doing as he lived out his life. But how did John prepare the people for the Lord? What was he up to? Well, before we get to what he said, let's just think for a minute about where he was. It says in chapter 3 in verse 1 that John was preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Now, when we see that, we think, well, of course that's where he was. It's a Bible place. This is happening in the Bible. John went to a Bible place and and he preached there. But the reality is this was a very harsh location. A few years ago, I had the opportunity to go to Israel and and went to the Judean wilderness in the area just north of the Dead Sea where the Jordan River comes down. It was a very inhospitable place. It was a a place where there weren't very many trees, and with the exception of the Jordan, there's, there's limited water. 
It was not a garden spot by any stretch. It was a place of desolation, of desperation. And that's the place where John goes to begin his preaching ministry to prepare the way for Jesus. And so when we see John ministering in the wilderness of Judea, we get reminded of the the, the statement I mentioned earlier that movements begin in the wilderness. What was John doing out there? Well, he was being used by God to start a movement. But, but why do movements begin in the wilderness? And before we really get into too many of the answers to that, let me just ask you, has, has a movement of God ever come out of a time that you have spent in the wilderness? I mean, I know that, that many of you in this room have walked with God, have come into a relationship with God at some point in the past, but did that relationship begin when your setting changed? Any of you go to a summer camp? get out of the the norm, out of the routine, out of the city. You go to to a camp, and it's at that place that you come to understand what God has for you in Christ. I know I just was talking to a friend that went to Pine Cove Men's Conference uh, a couple of weeks ago, and he said that every year when he goes to that conference, uh, he said he's so thankful for the opportunity he has just to get away and to reconnect with the Lord. It's, there's movements that are birthed when we just separate ourselves from the, the noise of the day and we, we go and we reflect on the Lord a little more in the wilderness. It, it's possible that part of the reason why this movement began in the wilderness was it just they needed to get away from the noise of the city. They needed to get away from the religious practice of the temple courts just to get out and, and focus on God a little more. Maybe that's why it began in the wilderness. But I think also this setting is is more than just a physical setting away from things. It was a a physical setting that reminded us of our our great needs. The physical setting of of the wilderness is is a very challenging place. It's a place of desperation. Every drop of water matters. And I think, friends, that God uses places of desperation to prepare our hearts for him all the time. We want to be a part of a movement, but let us not forget that the path to movement is often routed through the wilderness. Have any of you ever been in a spot in your life where you weren't physically isolated in the desert, but you were going through a a period of, of great challenge in your life? An illness was taking you out, a divorce happening in your family a death of somebody close to you, a significant life change lying in front of you. In the midst of these big moments like that, we find ourselves in a time of desperation before the Lord, looking to Him for things that we did not need when we were in the city of our comfort. But when we're in the wilderness, we find ourselves more dependent upon the Lord. The movement begins in the wilderness. It begins at a time where God wanted to teach them dependence upon him. And friends, if you find yourself in a time of wilderness right now, know that God wants to teach, to teach you dependence upon him in the midst of this season. You know, this is something that is not just for you. This is something for me too. I know that God has taught me a lot about depending upon him in the wilderness of physical illness that our family has dealt with in different seasons. I even find myself right now and, you know, 14 months into my role as senior pastor here at Wildwood, and I, and I find myself out over my skis a little bit at times. I find myself facing challenges and, and, and difficulties, 
I find myself a little bit in the wilderness, and there's times where I just want to walk away from those things and those feelings of, of need and dependence. But I, the reality is I want to be a part of a movement. I want to be a part of what God is doing in the path to Jesus. The, the path to Jesus many times is prepared through seasons of the wilderness. Friends, in your life, have you found that to be true also? Movements begin in the wilderness. Second thing that we see is this deals with really the message that John preached. Movements begin with a change of direction. Movements begin with a change of direction. If we want to go where we've never been, we need to head in a different direction. And that is the basic message that John was calling people to. He was calling them to change the trajectory of their lives, to change the direction that they were walking in. And it's found in the message that he gave that's summarized in verses 2, 8, and 11 of chapter 3. See if you can catch what the general gist of John's message was. Verse 2, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Verse 8, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. In verse 11, I baptize you with water for repentance. Now, what is the key word that summarized John's teaching? You see it? Repent, right? Now, that's a word that, sadly, we're not very familiar with. You know, in our, in our world and in our, in our culture um, today, we're, we're very, we, we freely talk about forgiveness. We seldom talk about repentance, John's message as he was out there in the wilderness over and over again, he's calling people to repent. He's calling them to do more than just be remorseful of their sin. He's calling on them to do a 180, to stop doing the things that are associated with their sin and turn and walk in a different direction. He's calling their hearts back towards God and their lives. He's calling on them to repent. Now, what was his motivation in calling them to repent? What, what is the reason that he gives for why repentance is necessary? Well, the reason why he gives is because judgment is coming. Look at what he says in verse 2. He says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, as we go along in our study of Matthew, we're going to understand more and more what he's talking about with the kingdom of heaven. But Make no mistake, when he says the kingdom of heaven is at hand, he is thinking of the day of the Lord that is coming, a time of judgment that would come upon the earth. Certainly salvation for those who are connected to God rightly, but judgment for all else. John says that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, it is near, because John knew that the Messiah was coming, Jesus was, was coming, and when he came, that judgment would come with him. Now, we know there was a parenthesis of time, right? Jesus was rejected, and so he was crucified, and then he ascended into heaven, and we're living in this time now, waiting for the second coming of Christ. But even as we sang in our opening song today, as we wait for the second coming of Christ, we understand that when Christ comes back, judgment is coming. The motivation for repentance that is, that is mentioned here is repent now because judgment is coming. Listen to how else he 
talks about this in two different ways he mentions it. In, in verse 10, he talks about it as it relates to the axe. He says, even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. The idea is that when Messiah comes, judgment comes as well. He says in verse 12, he says, his winnowing fork, speaking of Jesus, is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. The message was one of judgment is coming, therefore repent now. Friends, have you, have you thought about this? Have you thought about repenting of your sin because judgment is coming? This is something we need to consider. It's something that we need to keep in our mind because the reality is we are closer to judgment now than we have ever been before. I used to ask my dad when I was a kid, hey, dad, um, what time is it? You know what he would answer? Later than it's ever been. Like, thanks a lot, dad. How close are we to judgment? Closer than we've ever been. There will come a time when Jesus will return to the earth and judgment will come with him. Therefore, it's a motivation for us to repent now. Why would we persist in our pornography? Why would we persist in our financial impropriety? Why would we persist in our selfishness knowing that the return of Christ is coming? John stood in the wilderness and he, he called on people to repent. Part of preparing the way for Jesus is recognizing that our way is not the right way and we need to turn back to God and repent from our sin. Certainly being remorseful of our actions, but being willing to take action steps consistent with a lifestyle that says that sin is wrong. Friends, what does it look like in your life to repent? Understanding that Judgment is coming. You know, it's interesting, as John's out there preaching, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they come out, they come out to see him along with a number of others from the area. And, you know, when we see the Pharisees and the Sadducees show up, again, we think, of course they showed up. They're Bible people. They hang out. The reality is the Pharisees and the Sadducees don't hang out. They didn't like each other. They came from very different theological understandings. They had very bitter fights on other issues, but they come together to look down their nose at what John is doing in the wilderness. Why? Well, as, as you can imagine, if a crowd begins to gather, some people go there for the purpose of the meeting, but other people show up just to see what the spectacle is all about. And so the Pharisees and the Sadducees show up and they, they look down the hillside and they see these people being baptized. Now, here's what you got to know. Baptism was not unique in the first century. Sometimes we think baptism is something that the church invented. But the reality is we see right here, there were baptisms taking place even before the church ever happened. But here's how most baptisms took place in the first century in a Jewish context. Baptisms were okay for Jewish or Gentile proselytes who were becoming Jews. They could have a ritual cleansing. But baptism would never be something that a Jew would undergo. And so you can imagine the Pharisees and the Sadducees standing up on the hillside looking down their noses at what's happening and go, I see John, I see baptism, but I also see Jew, 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 Jew. What is he doing? Doesn't he know that that kind of cleansing is only needed for those Gentile sinners, not for us Jewish children of Abraham? 
And yet John knew that it was important to call to repentance all people, that the path to Jesus was a path of repentance and turning back to God for all people because sin was not something that just affected those outside the nation of Israel. It was something that affected those inside the nation of Israel as well. And I would say by application, it's not just a truth that is for those in our community who aren't here. It's a truth that is relevant for us who are here. We need to recognize that we are sinful people. We need to repent. Now, now many of you in your life have, have come to a understanding of this earlier on, and you repented of your sin, you came back and you, you trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. But there, there are some of you here today who, for the first time maybe, you're coming to grips with the notion that there is judgment that is coming, and you're feeling conviction of your sin, and you're wondering, what do I do now? I want to be a part of that movement, but, but what do I do? Well, the answer to that is found for us in verse 6. In verse 6, he says, they were coming out to him and they were baptized by John in the river Jordan and they were confessing their sins. Friends, if you find yourself under conviction today of your sin and you want to repent and you want to turn back to him, the one thing that you can do to begin that is just to confess your sin to the Lord. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 lets us know if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive our sin. When was the last time that you confessed your sin to the Lord? That you went before him and, and you said, Lord, I, I'm, a, I'm a sinner. I, I'm walking in this direction and I see that it's destructive and I know that judgment is coming. Please forgive me of my sin. You know, what's interesting is for, for John and in his world, uh, people would go down and they would, they would be baptized. John was baptizing them in the river, but he was basically just helping them have an event to remember that they wanted to do something different. That was as good as he could do. He could help them identify their sin. He could help them make a public statement that they wanted to change, but John could not change them. Here's what's great for you and I today. If you find yourself convicted of sin and you go before the Lord and you confess your sin and you acknowledge that Jesus and his death on the cross was sufficient to pay the penalty for your sin, guess what? Not only do we have you know, this idea of maybe we get, you know, we're gonna start a new life path and we get to try to do better, but we get the, the understanding that God in Christ actually cleanses us. That through the Holy Spirit, we are actually washed free from the guilt of our sin and forgiven in Christ. See, when we confess our sins and we lean on Christ and what he has done, then we have the hope of eternity. That is available to us today. Friends, if you have never placed your faith and trust in Christ, today can be the day that you do that. And that conviction that you have, that turning to God that happens in your repentance can be met with forgiveness today. It says they weren't just confessing their sins, though, but they also were baptized. You know, one of the great gifts that Christ has given the church is the opportunity to publicly profess in an outward way what God has already done on the interior of our lives. And as we gather as a church, one of the things that we do is we practice baptism. And the next baptism service at Wildwood is going to be on April the 2nd, coming up uh, just in, in just a month and a half from now. Um, and if you find yourself 
trusting in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, but not having experienced water baptism, we would love to have you publicly declare your faith in Christ through water baptism on April 2nd. And if you have questions about that or a desire to be baptized then, we would love to have you come on March the 5th to one of our baptism classes. We've got one class that is for uh, students, 6th through through, uh, 12th grade, and college students and adults. They're going to be together in one class. And then we've got another uh, baptism class that day for those who are children to go to with their parents. But if you are interested in baptism, you can find out more information about that and sign up at wildwoodchurch.org slash baptism. But we have the opportunity, friends, the opportunity to be a part of this movement that happens with this change of direction, not just spending time in the wilderness, but changing our direction and trusting in God. The third thing that we see about these movements is this, though. Movements begin with someone greater than us. Movements begin with someone greater than us. Now, we see this just related to John the Baptist. John is described in a number of different ways inside of uh, this passage that I think it's, it's helpful for us to just think about for a moment. It says that John the Baptist was preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Remember, one of the most inhospitable places on the earth. That's where John was. Very unattractive location, far from people, long walk from the city of Jerusalem. That's where he was. And not only was he out there, but let's, let's think about what he looked like out there. How was he dressed? Camel hair? Now, we hear that and think, that sounds quite stylish. No, it wasn't really all that stylish. Um, the attire that, that, that John had was the attire of a poor man. If you got close enough to John to, to have a conversation with him, what would his breath have smelled like? Locusts, I think. It was the diet of a poor man, the attire of a poor man in a very inhospitable location, preaching a message that was not very seeker-friendly. Repent, judgment is coming. And in the midst of all of those things that were happening, isn't it interesting, isn't it interesting what we find out in verse 5? It says, Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about Jordan were going out to him. Now, that's astounding. Someone that had that little going for him in a worldly perspective had all of Jerusalem and Judea and the Jordan region were going out to him to meet with him, to hear from him. Why? Why were they going? I think they were going because God was at work. I mean, remember, John's out there not because he wanted to be. He's out there because God had set him apart for that task. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, he's the one who came in the spirit and the power of Elijah to prepare the way of the Lord. That's why he was out there. His mission was God-ordained from the start. And not only was it ordained from the start, but think about what he said. Not just that he called them to repent, but he pointed to someone who was greater than himself. Verse 11, he says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. John was always pointing to Christ. 
Why were people going out to see him? Not because he had a cool meeting, but because God was in it. Meetings are made about clothing and snacks and location. Movements are made about who they are connected to. And John's movement is meaningful to us today, 2,000 years later, because it is connected to Jesus Christ. And friends, when we gather in this place, we are not here just to be a part of a meeting. We're here to be a part of a movement because we are connected to someone who is far greater than us. Why, why are you here? I mean, some of you are, are here because your friends are here and they've invited you to come. And that's, that's great. I, I'm so thankful for that. God has designed us to live in community and that's important. But, but our participation in the church is far greater than a cure for our loneliness. It's connection to the God of the universe and worship of Jesus. He is worthy of that. That's why we gather. That's why we listen to him from his word. Some of you are here because this amazing worship that we have. I mean, this, this band gets up and leads us every week, and they do an amazing job, and they, they guide us into this place. But, you know, here's the thing. We're not here just because of the music. We're here because of who we're singing about. We're looking to him. I've already established early on that you don't remember anything I say anyway, so we know that you're not here for me. But we're here for him. We have the privilege, friends, of being a part of a movement because this movement is connected to someone, not just something. We take our direction from him. We follow him everywhere. He's not a tribal being that is found only in this place. He's the God of the universe. That we have the privilege of worshiping here and there and everywhere. It's like a Dr. Seuss book. It could be wherever we go. We have the privilege of connecting with him. See, we're not a part of just a meeting. We're part of a movement. We live in a time, in a season of the world, where people are dying for change. They want their life to matter. You want your life to matter. You want to see change happen. Every election cycle, that's the promise. Change, change, change. How does our life really matter? It matters connected to a movement that God has worked through all history and he's invited us to participate with now. Friends, as we gather here today, let us remember Jesus. Let's worship Jesus. Let's change our direction and follow Jesus and see what he has for our future. Father, we thank you for the privilege of worshiping you today. Thank you that you've given us this, this truth about John the Baptist. You've preserved this historical event so that we would know what it looks like to prepare the way so that people have a path to Christ. Father, thank you that you began that movement years ago, but you have preserved it and continued it even to today. 
Father, I, I pray that as we stand here and sit here this morning, I know there are many hearts who are in the wilderness. There's challenges that they're facing, but Father, I pray that you would meet them in the wilderness and that you would help point their and turn their desperation to you. And Father, not only that, but I pray that we would walk out of the wilderness in the direction of repentance, in the direction of following you and trusting in Christ and his work to forgive us and to define the path of righteousness. Father, I pray that you would give us the faith to follow. And Father, I pray that we would not be people who look only to ourselves, but we would be people that would realize that the movement that you created is attached to, to someone greater. It's attached to the person of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray for all of us in this room, whether it is a continuation of a faith that began long ago or whether it's the first steps of faith and trusting in Christ, I pray that you would give us the faith to follow and to trust Jesus as the full forgiveness of our sin and the full embodiment of our righteousness. Father, help us to trust you now. In Jesus' name.